From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with war correspondent and author, Carmen Gentile, about his new memoir, Blindsided by the Taliban, a journalist story of war, trauma, love, and loss. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. War correspondent is simply defined as a journalist reporting from a scene of war. But that only begins to tell the story. It is a far cry from the 1940 portrayal starring Joel McRae in Foreign Correspondent. It is courageous, harrowing, and sometimes a foolhardy commitment to deliver the news. Many of us tragically remember the 2002 beheading of Wall Street Journal South Asia Bureau Chief Daniel Pearl. My guest, freelance journalist Carmen Gentile, in his new memoir, Blindsided by the Taliban, a journalist's story of war, trauma, love, and loss, narrowly escapes death's door to tell a riveting account of war and the impact it has had on his life. USA Today reporter Oren Durrell writes, quote, a rollicking journey that starts with what should have been a fatal event. A rare look at the personal cost of delivering the news from the world's hellholes into our living rooms. We are honored to have Carmen Gentile on The Public Morality. Carmen Gentile, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Good. Uh, let's begin by having you... Uh, Take us through your life as a freelance journalist, not, not just in Afghanistan or Iraq, but give us a summary of your career. <laughs> so we start, with the, we start with the easy questions first. That's how it works here. <laughs> no, I, I laugh because um, I, I'm actually working on a new book now that's a, a collection of short stories that, that touches on this very subject. Uh, going back 20 years the ups and, and many downs of being a freelance journalist and places it's taken me over the years, like Cairo and um, Washington, D.C. I was based there for a while, and then I was all over Brazil and all through Latin America, the Caribbean. My, my work as a freelancer has taken me to the Middle East, South Asia. I've covered wars. I've covered um, mass migrations and refugee camps, and um, it's been a lot of... Uh, the sorrow, but a little bit of the sweet as well. And now, how specifically uh, did you end up in Afghanistan as well as Iraq? Well, I had been at that point, I first went in 2005, and I had spent the, the previous three years working and living in Latin America. I was based in Brazil, and I was covering the entire region. And uh, the previous year, in 2004, I covered the coup in Haiti, and that was my first experience covering conflict. And um, it was a real eye-opener for me in that I'd never seen the, the, the basest, most inhumane ways in which man was capable of treating each other. And um, I, I handled it fairly well. I didn't rattle. 
under those extreme circumstances, there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of shooting and a lot of killing going on. And uh, I'd always been curious as to what was going on in the war in terror starting all the way back in 2001. And I just felt as though I was ready to see it for myself. Now, speaking um, specifically, well, specifically to the text, you know, something that really jumped out at me was your war correspondent in the 21st century, which says to me that means you are post-Vietnam. So talk about covering a war where the United States are essentially the only ones wearing uniforms, and, and you're going to places where at times it's difficult to differentiate who the enemy and the allies are. Talk about that experience. Well, it's, it's certainly very difficult in um, Afghanistan because uh, the soldiers face this every single day when they're going into small villages in rural parts of the country. Um, they may be greeted by the elder men and, and youngsters in the village uh, warmly. And then later that day, those same people will sit down and have a conversation with the Taliban and be plotting against those same soldiers. Um, it, is, it is a very difficult situation, not unlike one they faced uh, in, in Vietnam, um, trying to discern who was a friendly and, who, and who's an enemy. Um, I, I find that that is, is very stressful, certainly for me, but I can't imagine how stressful it is for soldiers uh, who do that continuously for an entire year. Uh, I had the you know, good fortune of being able to pop in and out off of combat outposts and go to different parts of the country and then return to my life at home. And over the course of many years, I've, I've spent a lot of time there, but not with the, the continuity that, that soldiers and Marines do. Um, it's really difficult. On top of that, you had a number of incidents over the years in which Afghan soldiers, uniformed soldiers, are turning their weapons on uh, the U.S. military. So you had perhaps soldiers who were um, Taliban infiltrators or just ones who had, had um, you know, grown fed up with being in the military or lost their minds for whatever reason, turning their weapons against U.S. soldiers. So the threat was everywhere, all the time. And uh, it, it definitely wears on you. Now, let's add another layer to, to that. As, as a journalist embedded with, with, with an Army unit, uh, talk about the steps you had to take uh, to gain the trust of the soldiers. Because I could see, and you talk about it in your text, that you're not greedy with open arms when you're embedded with the unit initially. No, not at first, because there's, there's two reasons. One, these guys are used to being with one another. They train together for years. They're now deployed together. They rely on one another to stay alive. They have really close bonds. And in that, it's difficult to penetrate those bonds and, and get people who, um, to open up to you. That, that's one reason. And two, there's just a natural distrust of, of journalists. Uh, there's a lot, there's been a lot of, uh, uh, I think some of, some of their higher ups will coach 
um, lower ranking soldiers about, hey, don't say this, don't say that. They're always worried about getting in trouble for, for being too candid in their responses about what's happening. Um, it's, uh, so th there's, there's that as well. My, uh, I don't want to call it a tactic per se, but the way in which I, I was able to um, get some of these guys uh, and women to trust me is just by being myself and let them know that I'm not out to ruin any of their, their careers or get them in trouble. I'm just here to, to tell the story of what's happening on the ground, and I just want to talk to them. I want to, I'd rather just get to know them as people than as subjects, and I think that is what makes the difference. I, I, a lot of these guys and women come from a part of the country similar to one where I grew up. I grew up in Western PA, uh, so we have some shared cultural similarities, I would say. College football, sports. I was going to say, Western PA, that, that just by nature makes you a Steelers fan, correct? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with freelance journalist and author Carmen Gentile about his new memoir, Blinded by the Taliban. Uh, Carmen. Uh, Can I tell you that it's blindsided by the Taliban? I'm sorry, did I say blinded? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, blindsided. I'm, my apologies, yeah. That's okay. Blindsided. Thank you for the correction. Uh, Carmen, what is uh, uh, Pertle King or PK, and why is it called that? Pertle King was a small combat outpost tucked in the mountains in Kunar province near the Pakistani border. It was named for two soldiers, um, Pertle and King, who were killed uh, at, a, at a nearby observation post not far from the area in a uh, Taliban offensive. And uh, Pertle King was a place that was that housed a, a company of soldiers, and so that's about a hundred or so men and some Afghan soldiers as well. And it was tiny; it was ringed with um, protective barrier walls. There were a lot of uh, sandbags on the roof of roofs of every building because they were getting hit all the time. And it was surrounded by mountains. Strategically, it was a terrible place to be. Uh, you, you'd have to question the sanity and the a, just the well, the judgment of the individual who decided to plop that combat outpost in the bottom of a valley where they could be hit from 360 degrees. It was it was madness. Um, they would get hit all the time with small arms fire, with mortars and and other weaponry. Um, it was it was a dangerous place. Well, I, I was gonna my follow up question. You sort of already answered it, but my follow up question was going to be because you describe in your book, uh, you sort of compare it to like shooting fish in a barrel. So, what was the logic, strategic logic, of of of, of placing that uh, camp there? Well, some general with stars on his collar will have to be uh, the one to answer that because to the to the layman such as myself didn't make any sense. To anybody who'd ever served there, it doesn't make any sense. So whoever decided to put it there should be the one to answer that question because I cannot come up for, with a, for the life of me with a good reason for why that, for why that outpost was there. You know, uh, everybody you know, reads a book that you know, they, they bring their own, there's certain things that jump out to each individual. One of the things that jumped out at me there's a grittiness that you provide to the text that will not allow the reader, in my view, to comfortably leave the environs from where you're importing in a way that 
does not appear, I would imagine, when you're reporting on your normal uh, media outlets with Associated Press, uh, USA Today, CBS, what have you. So was was there anything uh, behind that or or simply a matter of you just not being constrained by, let's just say, the AP style book? <laughs> That's a good point. Um, I had always wanted to tell these stories in a way that I thought was most accurate. And um, you cannot tell the story of what's going on in Afghanistan, in my estimation, from the perspective of, of soldiers and from my own perspective, without that grittiness, without that um, sometimes contemptuousness, without that um, a, a certain flair with four-letter words. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only ways to add to accurately and adequately describe what is going on there. And obviously I can't use that language when I'm, when I'm writing for uh, a mainstream publication like USA Today or for any of the other outlets for which I've worked. So to me, um, this book is the best reporting I've, and most accurate reporting I've ever done. Now on page 13, you write, and I'm, uh, quote, dangerous living and few amenities are, amenities are the norm for the soldier to see combat in Afghanistan. But this place is particularly bad one of the, wor- or of the worst I've seen. The showers and clothes washers at PK uh, gave out long ago. Consequently, no one has had the proper wash in months. Everyone reeks of mud cake, sweat, soaked uniforms, and mall uh, and mall uh, doing unwashed feet. Uh, when I read this, you know, I'm thinking of Sherman's quote, you know, "War is hell," and I'm also thinking this is a long way from the vision encapsulated by the phrase "I support the troops." I'd ha- like to have you respond to that. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of folks who don't pay close attention to the uh, ongoing wars in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, would not believe the, the circumstances in which uh, soldiers are, are, are forced to, to live and, and survive um, in, a, in the modern day. You know, I had a great uncle who fought in the South Pacific, and they went through, through the kind of adversity one can't even imagine. Um, but, you know, in the 21st century, they're still dealing with adversities that new ones and challenges that are, you would think, had, would have been eliminated at this point. Um, I, I've been at places where guys weren't getting square meals uh, every day. They were only getting one hot meal a day. The rest of the time, they're just living on snacks. And <laughs> you'd see some gaunt-looking soldiers. It's funny. I've seen guys... Uh, you know, I've been doing this a long time. So I've seen guys in Afghanistan, and um, I'll, I'll see them years later after they've left the military and, and have gone back to the, have gone into their civilian lives and to, back to their wives or their girlfriends or, or families or whatever, and they've gained 50 pounds. Not 50 pounds of fat, 50 pounds of just back to normal human being size. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are, they are, I've seen emaciated soldiers. And I saw at, at Pearl King, especially the, the way that they were climbing those mountains all the time and all that gear. 
Uh, they were they these guys were were hollowed out. Some of them. It, chapter three uh, of your book is entitled "Thanks, Claude Pepper." And for those who who may not know, tell us who Claude Pepper is, and then, if you will, discuss the significance of this relatively short chapter in your text. Well, this is the the part of the book where I where I first introduce the reader to a backstory. Um, in addition to this book being about my injury, my physical injury, there's a there's another line, uh, uh, another narrative in which I was uh, previously engaged and I had a uh, a romantic interest that um, took a took a turn. I don't want to spoil too much for the reader. Yeah. But that that first chapter, thank you, Claude Pepper, is about uh, when I first met my my love interest. That's in the book. We met at the Federal Building in Miami, which is called the Claude Pepper. Who was a he was a prominent federal judge in South Florida years ago, and uh, that's where I met the woman uh, to whom I, I later became engaged. And uh, that's that that chapter um, is our is all about our first meeting. Again, I'm speaking with journalist and author. Uh, Carmen Gentile about his new memoir, Blindsided by the Taliban. Uh, Carmen, uh, chapter five. Uh, let, let's begin simply with why you entitled it Mean Mugging. Um, mean Mugging is a term that uh, soldiers and Marines often use when they're walking into a place um, and they notice that people are giving them dirty looks. That dirty look is called a mean mug. You know, your mug being your face. They, mm -hmm. Somebody. If, so if you're walking some in some place and everyone's mean mugging you, there's a there's a chance that something is going to go wrong. Um, there, people aren't uh, happy to see you're there. Uh, they might be up to something, and and you know, body language says a lot, uh, especially in Afghanistan when there's such a language barrier. Uh, something I, I note in that chapter is also the fact that uh, often when you go into a village and you see children milling about, it's it's a good sign in that something bad's not going to happen. But if you go in there and the children all scatter as soon as as soon as you enter, you, you have to be very very concerned and prepared for for the worst because there's a good chance it's going to happen. Well, I'm gonna uh, if I may, I'm gonna read two sentences from page 27. And I would like to have you just take it from there and take, take as much time as you need. You write, a handful of Afghan boys scatter when I try to say hello. Youngsters are usually pretty good indicators of the vibe in the village. The floor is yours. That's it. When after uh, they make that move, you, you know that something is, is going to go down. And um, more often than not, it does. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, that's, that's when I knew that I was starting to get a really hinky vibe about being there. Um, and I think I even used the word hinky, if I remember correctly. You did, in some, fact. You did, in fact. Yeah. Something was just really wrong, and I could feel it. Um, and And... Uh, I, I just was very, very nervous. Even while I was later talking to those group of young men on the side of the road, I was so scared knowing something was, was up. 
that I couldn't quite tell what the interpreter was saying to me. And I was, I was stammering over my own words and having a hard time understanding. And I had my video camera trained on them and just everything was, was, uh, was going wrong. I could tell, <laughs> I could tell something was going to happen. I didn't know what would, what ultimately happened would happen, but I had a, I had a bad feeling. What happened? Well, that's when I heard the loud whooshing sound from behind me, and I turned to my right, and I saw a man uh, about 40 yards down the road shouldering a uh, rocket-propelled uh, grenade launcher, uh, and uh, the, uh, the stream of smoke was coming from his shoulder and, and heading right toward me, and at the head of that smoke was the conical-tipped ordnance, uh, which is the RPG, and the thing came right as it was coming right toward me I went from absolute panic and terror to to resignment of my fate in a matter of a nanosecond I went from from absolutely um just I convulsed with fear to resignation and I knew because I knew I was dead I knew it was just going to snuff me out uh I the day earlier an, an RPG had hit one of the armored vehicles um from Colonel King uh, this is a 16-ton armored vehicle, and it had um, hit it in the engine block, and the block had been completely blown away. They had to tow the vehicle back. So I figured that was going to be incinerated. And so as it hit me, I thought this is the end. And what happened was it hit me in the side of the head without detonating, and instead of turning out all my lights, it just turned out the light in my, in my right eye, and it sent a crashing uh ringing sound into my head and I dropped to the ground and that's when I noticed that the blood was pouring out of my face. Uh, the, you were um, attended to um, and then you were sent uh, from Afghanistan. You went to Berlin. Is that correct? Well, I went to Landstuhl. It's a, it's another military, okay. it's, a, it's a medical military, U S military base. And I received some treatment there. I had my first operation in Afghanistan at the uh, military hospital at, at Bagram Air Base, and uh, I, uh, I was I was very thankful that they were uh, able to save my eye. Although initially they told me I would lose it, and then I went to Landstuhl for a few days to be stabilized before being flown onto uh, New York where I had numerous follow-up surgeries. How many surgeries have you had since, since, since that accident? I had a total of uh, four procedures. Mm -hmm. There was the first one in, in um, Afghanistan, and then about a week, and a, a week later, week and a half later, they, they did a really extensive surgery in New York. Um, it was two back-to-back -back procedures. One was to repair the laceration in my eye, and the other one was to rebuild my face. I was um, knocked out. Uh, I was under sedation for these operations for 12 hours. And uh, they had me um, where they had to reconstruct all the – because the side of my face had been hit. I, I, my entire cheekbone and the eye, orbital socket had been shattered. It was like a box of loose toothpicks in there. So they had to rebuild it all with uh, 12 pins and four plates. And that, so that took a long time. There were numerous 
physicians on hand. Uh, in fact, it was a uh, precedent-setting procedure that uh, the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital later wrote a paper about. So <laughs> I'm in the record books for that, I guess. <laughs> so and they were able to save your eyes, is that correct? They were able to save my eyes, correct. Um, I have a, I had a severe laceration in the eye. I don't want to get into too, too much technical medical jargon, but they were able to save it, although I was uh, unable to see out of it. I could just see a mash of colors, uh, and that's it. And it was just a, like a, a, a muddy palette of, uh, of pigment that I could see out of that eye. That's it. No, no, not even much light. And uh, I was that way for six months. I couldn't see out of that eye. Uh, until I had to heal, the, the eye had to heal enough for them to do the the fourth and final procedure was to which was to stitch a corrective lens onto the eye, it's like a permanent contact on on my eye that is stitched to the eyeball that refocuses it uh, to a certain degree, and I can see shapes and much clearer out of it now, but I can't read out of it, and it's um, it's blurry and wavy, and I, at night it's um, the problem with my eye is that it's the pupil's fixed dilated. So during the day, it's very bright out of that eye. And at night, there's a lot of halos uh, due to, the, to that fixed dilation as well. So uh, normally, as of, you know, like right now, I, I have my eye patch on, so I keep it covered. Uh, I'm more comfortable that way. I, I was going to ask you, uh, as a writer, do you have to put the eye patch on to write? Yeah. Well, I, I put it on. The, the first thing I do when I walk in the house is put on my eye patch. I don't wear it out in public just because I don't like to be seen out in public wearing it too often. Right. Um, yeah, I always wear sunglasses when I'm outside, and uh, that makes it easier. And at night, I wear those um, yellow-tinted sunglasses that, uh, you know, the elderly wear when they're not supposed to be driving, but they right. insist they still can. Right. I wear those at night. <laughs> and... Um, and yeah, when I get home, I, I always just put on my eye patch. It's, it's so I, it's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, and and uh, the last thing I do at night is, is take it off when I'm in the house. So, yeah, most of my day is spent is spent wearing it. Now, 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 your accident occurred in 2010. Correct. Correct. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that that would, would seem dumb, I would say, to, to many listeners. But have you been to Afghanistan since? Yes, yes. Uh, I I went back uh, several times. In fact, um, probably. Let me see if I count correctly. I think I went. I was back six times since uh, since the injury, and I went back um, right after I was cleared medically. So I was hurt in September 2010, and as of May 1st, 2011, I was medically cleared to to resume my work. And uh, a couple weeks later, I was in Afghanistan. Now I'm sure uh, people listening. I I actually obviously already knew that knew how you were going to answer that, but I'm sure a number of, of listeners might wonder why would you go back and I and before you answer, explain that in the context of being a freelance journalist and why it was important for you to go back. Well, I didn't want that incident to define the rest of my life and define the rest of my career. Although, if we're going to be frank, it, it's probably going to be in the first if, or the second paragraph of my obituary. <laughs> Let's just be honest. <laughs> it's such an unusual event, and uh, I did write a book about it, so there's a good chance that uh, it, it's, gonna, it's definitely going to be the top of the highlight reel. But I, 
personally, I, I just didn't want to be um, frightened off and, and wondering for the rest of my life whether or not that I, I could still do that kind of work. And, and it's the kind of work that I'm pretty good at doing, so I, I wanted to resume it. There really wasn't – I didn't feel at that time there was much else for me to do, so um, – I felt compelled personally and professionally to, to get back in the game. You, you fall down, you get knocked down, you get back up, and you, you go at it. That's it. You call um, this story a, a journalist story of war, trauma, love, and loss. Now, we've always talked, discussed the war and, to some degree, the trauma uh, we haven't talked too much about love and loss. Do, do you want to touch those in any way? Well, you know what? The the original subtitle that I liked that my publisher vetoed. And, um, don't you hate that? <laughs> don't you hate that? Uh, I, that, that, I don't like that. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. No, I don't like it. The original one was, well, the original title of the book was Kissed by the Taliban because I thought that that would, would better convey the, the, the dark, humorous tone of the, of the, of the prose. <laughs> but my publishers thought that it would be off-putting to people who saw it on the shelf thinking that I was somehow pro-Taliban, which I don't see that, but that's another issue. Uh, the, the subtitle that I really uh, I wanted, and, and I, I fought for it to the end, um, and I lost that fight, was I, I called it an unrequited love story. In that it was unrequited, my, my unrequited love uh, for journalism. Uh, I love I love doing the job, but doesn't mean that it necessarily loves me back. Nor should I expect it to. But an unrequited love uh, of uh, of a woman that uh, I had I had fallen in love with, and I thought was reciprocal, and we had been engaged, and and things uh, took a, a terrible turn. Um, prior to, to my injury, but particularly after, and uh, without getting into too many details that will spoil the story, right, we, I'll just say that, that was a, it was a very difficult time for me. Uh, how did you respond personally after that breakup? Talk, talk about that if you would. How, how did you respond? Well, Go ahead. Uh, I felt uh, unjustifiably that I, I could do whatever I want. Uh, I had been shot in the head. I had been uh, scorned by somebody who had professed to love me, and so I thought, I'm I'm due to get whatever I want. And I set about doing a number of things that uh, did not necessarily make me the most appealing person over the, the course of the next few months. Uh, I don't want to get into too much of the detail no, no, and no. the story. But I, I, I went on a on a uh, I went on a tear. <laughs> now it's not the kind of tear that some people might imagine, thinking that it was drugs or alcohol, because I had actually uh, retired my my uh, my title as as the uh, as the as a booze hound and a and a drug addict years earlier. So I did the other thing, the only other thing that. Uh, I, I could do to, to ruin my life and others. I just started to go on a romantic tear, let's well, say. Well, you, let me, and, and we don't want to ruin the book for, uh, for those who haven't read it, uh, haven't read it. Uh, but I would say this, though. What was striking, another thing that's striking to me, I found, I don't know if you, if you feel this way, but I found 
when you were telling those stories, separate from war, that the grittiness was still sort of there. Was that, how, how, how did you feel about that? Yeah, I, I, I didn't want to varnish the story in any way that would cast me in a positive light because I wasn't feeling very positive about myself. And so I didn't think that I, I and I didn't want anyone to, to feel sorry for me uh, because I thought it would, it wasn't accurate. I didn't deserve anyone's pity. Um, you know, after I'd gotten hurt just a few, after a few months, after a few months after I'd gotten hurt, um, I had burned through all the goodwill that, that I had earned up um, from friends and significant others uh, that to the point where nobody wanted to have anything to do with me. I was just a mess uh, because I was being selfish and, and, and inconsiderate of other people's feelings. And I didn't care who I hurt because I felt entitled to do whatever I wanted. And I, and I wanted revenge. I wanted revenge on the woman that hurt me and I wanted revenge on the world. And so I, I sought my revenge in, in not the most, um, flattering way and so I, I didn't think that I deserved it to have my story sugarcoated anyway so that's why that's that grittiness is there now you now you're currently married correct and you have a child correct uh, two-year-old daughter yes okay. she's two years old all right so two-year-old daughters tend to mellow dad out just a little bit I'm thinking <laughs> uh but I'm also thinking that that bug to be uh, in the theater of war has not left. So how how do you balance those two? Well, uh, it's it's a hard balance, that's for sure. Uh, for much of um, 2017 um, and just uh, earlier this year and this spring, I was spending time in Iraq covering the fighting in Mosul. So I was going in and out of Mosul and um, working with uh, and, and being embedded with not U.S. forces this time, but Iraqi special forces. And the fighting was really intense and it was uh, a dodgy situation for, for sure. And what's what's changed, though, is that I don't um, I, I, I am cognizant of the fact that I'm a father and that I have responsibilities and I have to come home. Uh, so I can't go as hard as I used to. Although some would say just being there is, is putting yourself on the line. And I agree. So it's, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough, uh, road to, to negotiate. Uh, but I, it's, it's the work I know how to do. I'm not really qualified to do much else. I am trying to, to go in a, in a, in a little bit of a different direction. I've been, um, I'm an avid motorcyclist, and I did a story recently where I um, <laughs> was riding motorcycles uh, with a photographer friend of mine in Iraq, and we did a story about motorcycling in the context of of the war in Iraq and Mosul. And I'm trying to parlay that into to doing more stories like that that have to do with uh, with riding in, in places where I've worked, and uh, hopefully show people a different part of the world from behind the handlebars. Take us through when you're actually in the theater of war covering a story as opposed to being back in the States and you see the news coverage, you know, as a civilian. Um, what, 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 
What goes through your mind? Well, you know, it depends. If it's if it's good reporting, I appreciate it in a way that I think other other people can't because I have been in those situations and I know the the risks that people have to take to to get to um, the front lines of a story and come back and, and tell it and tell it well. Uh, when I see good reporting, I, I really appreciate it. I don't just look at it at, at face value. Of course, I'm always um, reading between the lines of, of how that story is, is being told and thinking about uh, what it took to get to that position and to talk to those particular people. So it's, you know, I have a different appreciation for it just as um, somebody that, say, played professional football can watches a, a football game in a completely different way in which uh, a casual or even a, even a, a sports fan would, would watch it. Somebody who's, who's been in the, been in the, on the field knows things that people who haven't don't. So, uh, you know, I have, I have that appreciation when I see it done well, I really appreciate it. When I see it done poorly, when I see it done in a way that glosses over the, um, the horrors of, of what's going on on the ground, uh, that, that really bugs me. That bugs me a lot. Um, you know, there are no winners in war. It's just everybody's losing to a different degree. So I, I feel as though uh, some journalists do a really good job of conveying that and others do not. And uh, I appreciate the ones that do. Does it concern you that it needs to be a rather significant event in Afghanistan or Iraq to make the front page, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's pretty much in my my words, not yours. It's in the public discourse. Those two efforts are in our rearview mirror, so to speak. You know, I think we need to stop um, thinking about news in the context of the front page, because my front page is not the same as your front page. You know, the front page is, I know it's, it's the, oh, what's the top story at the top of the, or in, in the physical publication, or what's um, the top of the newscast that you watch, be it network or cable or, or whatever, however you consume your news. This notion of, of what's top it is, is uh, really irrelevant. It's more about getting people to, appreciate just how devastating war can be. And the reason why most people don't appreciate that in America is because the vast majority of Americans have never fought in war. Um, we have established what I call a warrior class, where the vast majority, of, you know, a very small portion of the American public, like 0.5% now, currently alive and ser are, are serving or have served in the armed forces. And it's it's not... Um, you know, you can, you can have all the, the fanfare at football games for the troops that you want, but that doesn't mean that you understand or appreciate what really is going on, uh, in the hearts and minds of soldiers and Marines that come back from these places and have experienced the kind of devastation and horrors that no one can, can imagine unless they've actually been there. So uh, my problem is, is that to, for us to, to – it's not about the front page. It's about finding a way in which to get more people 
in, in, to understand just how devastating war is. And it's not just images flashing on the screen. It's not images in a movie theater or a video game. It's real in a way. And I don't know how to, I don't have an answer. That my, I'm sorry, the long about way I'm getting to this is that I don't have an answer for how to, how to, to get those stories to the top of people's minds other than um, mandatory military service. That's the only way I can think about it. And that, that, and we, have, we have mandatory military service. You could sure, you could sure as hell bet that we wouldn't have, we wouldn't be involved in half as many conflicts as we are. Yeah, no, and that may be the answer. I mean, you, you, may, you may not have a plethora of answers, but the one you offer may very well be be the one. Um, we talked a little bit about how you, how you balance between being, you know, now that you're married, now that you're a father, uh, how you you sort of balance that you know, um, with your love of, 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 of being a, uh, a freelance journalist, in particular a war correspondent. But what does the future look like for Carmen Gentile? I know you're working on another book, but what does the future look like? Well, <laughs> um, I'm working on this other book, and I'm trying to do, like I said, do more stories that involve motorcycling. Uh, I'm working on a series of... of uh, 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 projects that have to do with, with riding. Um, and in fact, I'm working with a production team to put together what could be either a TV series or a streaming site series about riding in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, um, certain parts of Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia. Uh, we've got a, a concept where we're trying to get people more interested in what's happening in these places by, uh, incorporating riding into the story uh it's not uh it's not unlike what anthony bourdain did with food i think uh the last five years of his work uh with cnn on parts unknown was some of the best journalism on cnn because he made people care about parts of the world they would never uh give a second thought about um simply by showing up there and asking people uh, about their daily lives and sitting down and having meals with them um, that's, that to me is, is really good on the ground journalism. And I think we can accomplish something similar by, um, adding an element that is seemingly incongruent with what we're doing, but showing people that, um, it, it is possible. Uh, one of the reasons why we chose motorcycling, not just because we, we love to ride, but it's because, um, Unlike in America and most of the developed world where motorcycles are, are luxury toys, motorcycles in the rest of the world, for the vast majority of the population of this planet, are a uh, necessity of transportation for the, for the poor and working class. So we, went, so we were recently shooting some video in northern Iraq this spring where uh, a, a fellow journalist and I were on these little motorcycles that people in Iraq ride, these tiny little bikes that come from China and Iran. And we rode them around northern Iraq, and, and um, you know, they broke down, and they, we had all kinds of troubles with them along the way, but that was part of the story. And, and we just talked to people about their lives, and that's what we're going to try to do as a, as a potential series. The name of the book, Blindsided by the Taliban. A journalist story of war, trauma, love, and loss. And the author joining me for this hour has been uh, Carmen Gentile. Carmen, thank you, sir, 
for not only for your service, but for also being on the Public Morality Day. Hey, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was Carmen Gentile. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. On the heels of my conversation with journalist Carmen Gentile, it is somewhat serendipitous that this week also commemorates the beginning of the Potsdam Conference, meetings among the World War II Allied forces that in part divided the spoils of victory. It was also the beginning of the Vietnam conflict. With the agreement of U.S. President Harry Truman France was allowed to return to Indochina as a colonial power, much to the surprise of the Vietnamese, who was ostensibly an ally of the Allied forces as they fought against Japan. Soon, it became too hot for France, who willingly passed this hot potato to the United States. President Eisenhower deepened our involvement by not demanding elections to unify North and South Vietnam because he feared that Ho Chi Minh, who was a communist, would win in a landslide over the U.S.-backed No Dinh Diem. President Kennedy, not to be outdone by Eisenhower's missteps, sent more than 16,000 military advisors and ignored the potential coup against Diem until he was left with no other alternative but to support the coup once DM's palace was surrounded. This left Lyndon Johnson with the insurmountable challenge to fix what was already an intractable quagmire. Johnson contributed by making his own series of infractions and mendacity. Unfortunately for Johnson, by the time Vietnam was his responsibility, it had also seeped into the nation's conscience. For what has been said and what will be said about the Vietnam conflict, it began with a meeting in Potsdam 73 years ago this week, one of our many detours on the path toward a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcasts, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.